0: Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books Network Seminar. Welcome and thank you very much for joining me in a conversation about a book that I love very much. This is John Durham Peter's recent book, The Marvelous Clouds, Toward a Philosophy of Elemental Media. This came out in 2015 with the Chicago University Press. Now, what are elemental media, you might ask? Well, you're going to hear a lot about that in the hour to come, but they include, for example, fiery media, Watery media, airy media, earthy media, and ethery media. Over the course of the book, what John does is he brings us into these environments as media, as a way not just to inform and, and push on and speak to and speak from media studies, but also as a way to help us see different kinds of things and ask different kinds of questions than we might otherwise be able to. What would it mean to really take seriously the question of whether clouds have meaning? What would it be to live in an ocean habitat as a human being? What would that do to how we understand and experience not just sensation, vision, hearing, but also some of the basic fundamental elements of our human infrastructure that we take for granted, like the idea of now, for example, and you'll hear us talk about that. In a few moments. So, it's a book that is absolutely beautiful. It's really, really thoughtful and it's full of so many just wonderful questions and conversations and narratives and, and ways of thinking about what it is to be a human being, um, what it is to be living in, living with, living on, living through something, and how we might bring together the humanities, the arts, the sciences, media studies, and natural studies to have a kind of conversation that might really push us in new directions and a conversation for which the stakes are really, really high. So this is a book that's not just about, um, at least in, in terms of my reading of it, it's not just about let's have thought experiments for their own sake. It's a book that really shows why those Thoughts and why this kind of thoughtfulness about this particular set of topics is urgent, is vital, is important, is necessary. So, thank you so much for joining us um, at the channel. Thanks for joining me today. I hope you enjoy. Um, It's a beautiful book, and I had a lot of fun talking with John about it. So, thanks again. Enjoy and get your hands on a copy of the book when you have a chance. It's super worth it and it rewards close reading, no matter who you are and what field you are and what you're interested in. Enjoy. I'm here today to talk with John Durham Peters about his new book, The Marvelous Clouds, and a marvelous book. It is. Welcome to the New Books Network Seminar, John, and thanks so much for making time to talk with me today.
1: My pleasure.
0: So this is an amazing book, and we have a lot to talk about, um, but let's start at the beginning. John, how did you come to work in communications studies as your major field?
1: That that's kind of a long story that I'll I'll try not to get bogged down in. But I've always been interested in deep questions about life and and the uh, universe. I can remember when I was very young asking um, my mother um, where God came from, and she said, "Well, Mother Nature." She was a she was um, a good feminist, and so I think she and um, she was an artist, asked me lots of good questions when I was little. My father was um, a doctor interested in science. And so I think I was uh, raised in an environment where big questions were were kind of natural things to uh, to uh, pursue. And um, I couldn't figure out what to major in in college. And I decided on an English major because it seemed to um, integrate a lot of my interests. And then I was um, called to serve a church mission in in the Netherlands um, after my sophomore year in college. And I spent two years there in, in, in Holland in a variety of, of cities. And I met people from all over the world and learned Dutch and learned, learned bits of other languages and was kind of thrown into the Indo-European cauldron and realized, you know, English doesn't really... You know, cover all the problems of meaning and symbol making that I'm that I'm interested in, and you know, one day after after my mission, I was in the University of Utah bookstore and happened to, um, upon a bunch of books on the on the shelf um, for a class that were basically all the books that I wanted to read and it was a communication studies class and so I it was serendipity I just half was happenstance I ended up taking the class and switched to a master's in communication and then got my PhD and you know it wasn't you know, the field that I dreamed it would be when I started in, but it's certainly given me a lot more room to look at language and meaning and culture and history and technology and all the stuff that I'm interested in. So, sorry for the long answer, but no, no. there it is.
0: Ah, bookstores.
1: Bookstores. Take
0: a moment to appreciate <laughs> bookstores. I went to um, university as well, and uh, there was always a week at the beginning of classes where you'd go into the bookstore, and at that point all the classes' books were on all the shelves, and it was just this carnival of ideas and a
1: perfect carnival yes that's what it is
0: so how did you come from this broader field to this particular project on elemental media and and related to that at what point did you decide that elemental media um would sustain for you a book-length object
1: a book-length project yeah i mean elemental media i'm not sure if if that term was early or late in the process of writing. Um, a term that I, I really liked early on was infrastructures and infrastructural media. And and the marketing people at the University of Chicago told me that infrastructure, infrastructural were the kiss of death. And I th- <laughs> I think, speaking of bookstores, I think they were right, actually. And, you know, the the book really is structured to try to hit upon you know the five classical elements of of water and fire and air and earth and and ether and so i realized that actually the um, the the marketers gave me a gift of helping me to to rethink of a more fundamental and a better term because elemental has the deep philosophical history it's also got a nice kind of natural science feel to it you know earth elements things and it also kind of has this um, you know phenomenological sense of something which is in the background and and uh, taken for granted the basic elements of of life, so I guess I mean that too is a kind of serendipitous uh, discovery that elements could be the sustaining thread for something that i 'd been trying to work on without realizing it.
0: So the book itself, which gets its title actually from a prose poem by Baudelaire, and this is a poem that's invoked at the very end of the book, offers a philosophy of elemental media. And we've talked a little bit about um, already very briefly what that means, and we'll go into it in much more detail with much more um, kind of particularity um, in the course of the conversation. Now, you call media early in the book vessels and environments containers of possibility, and we'll talk about containers and and the importance of containers, right, Um, that anchor our existence and make what we're doing possible. So not only containers, but anchors are going to be important um, insofar as we're going to talk about ships, right, and vessels soon.
1: Um,
0: So if this is what media, or at least one way of thinking media... Right. Yes. How do environments become media? So one of the points that comes up very early in the book um, is that environments are media. Um, Can you talk for listeners um, who may not be familiar with the book yet or may not have had a chance to pick it up a little bit about what that means for you and why that's important?
1: Sure. Well, since you're you're sitting in Canada, my book is influenced by um, a number of people, but including some Canadian thinkers including Marshall McLuhan and, and McLuhan liked to make the argument that media are environments and that, you know, that we live in, in an electronic environment or a print environment. And, you know, he was very eager to kind of pick up on the ecological metaphor of a kind of background system that enables our life and yet, which we don't recognize. And, you know, in some ways, I mean, that made um, a lot of sense, and, and it it still makes a lot of sense. But I thought, what would happen if we flip that and thought about, um, you know, the sea as a medium, or the air as a medium, or the earth um, as as a medium, and the argument is basically that. And in a world in which humans have so dominated everything um, about nature that we can't really talk about nature in in any kind of pure or, you know, untampered with um, conditions. So that the only access we have to the sea or to the sky or, or to the earth is via media, which we humans have made. And... You know, I'm not sure that every period in history that the environment would be a medium, but certainly in our day of big data and of the Anthropocene, as it's popular uh, to call it, I think it's very useful to try to think about that the basic structures of our world as if they were they were media that um, connect us and which um, are are channels and which open up, yeah, different possibilities.
0: You call early in the book media ensembles of natural element and human craft. And that's going to be something that we're going to return to, I'm sure, implicitly or explicitly in the course of the conversation. So the chapters look at the ways that media give life, give new life to old practices, as you put it. The practices um, include navigating, cultivating, stargazing, weather forecasting, documenting, fishing, among others. They look at key metaphors for digital media and more. Fire, sea, clouds, sky, God, books, and they treat particulars as ways of getting at this. So we learn about the jaws of dolphins. We learn about um, towers and clocks and watches and particular um, ways of um, forming calendars. It's very much a book about particulars, right? Or that uses particulars as part yeah. engaging this, and that's really important. Ashes, soot, etc. So let's actually get right into it. Chapter one takes us into some of the foundational ideas that shape the book. And really, this chapter charts um, what you call a kind of intellectual landscape for rethinking media. Now, we could spend easily like three or four hours just on this chapter. Um, There's so many thinkers and so many ideas um, that are so interesting here, and it's a really useful chapter for grounding us in this field, but I want to just ask you to talk about um, one or two of these ideas that come up um, that seem really, really important just for us to um, understand right at the beginning. And the first thing that I want to ask you about is an idea you've already mentioned. This is the idea of infrastructure. Um, You talk about infrastructure right at the beginning as something that's absolutely crucial for the work that the book is doing. Um, You talk about infrastructuralism um, as one way of um, possibly thinking through these ideas, and you describe infrastructural media as media that stand under. Right. So, if the chapter is called "Understanding Media," this idea of, of behind the scenes, standing under, demurring is really important. So, for listeners again who are not um, not really familiar with the importance of this concept, out out of the concept of or out of the context of city planning or such, um, can you talk for us about? what you take to be the most important aspects of infrastructure and the idea of infrastructuralism for us to understand in order to understand what's going to be happening in the rest of the book.
1: Yeah, so um, Understanding Media, the title, of course, is borrowed from a McLuhan's book from, from 51 years ago, in which he unfurled so many different kinds of media as media, including light bulbs and bicycles. And my, my critics have, have said the same thing, that I tend to stretch the notion of media beyond the breaking point. But I try to uh, reply by talking about how this notion of, of infrastructure, which has become so important, and, um, you know around the world and talking about critical infrastructure i mean typically we think of infrastructure as railroads and pipes and electrical grids and and the internet hillary clinton dubbed it the iconic infrastructure of our age all all of these things and if we if we can think of media as infrastructures i mean rather than thinking of them as ways that i mean okay well let me let me back up. I mean normally we think of media as ways that stories are told or information is dispersed or advertising or news is spread. We think of radio, T V, uh newspapers. And by my effort is to try to say, "Well, what would happen if we focus less upon the message, upon the content that these that these media carry and more about the ways that they connect and enable? And if we did that, we would be able to see that media can be understood in in a much broader way to connect with the very ground of our existence, so we can think of an electrical grid as a medium. We can think of the sea as a medium. We can think of oxygen as a medium because it's something which is which is taken for granted, but which um, upon which everything else is built. So it's kind of an, an effort to move from the figure to the ground, from what's obvious to what's in the background, and to kind of celebrate what what we. Uh, take for granted. And just just one more comment the idea of infrastructuralism i really it's really jokey in in a lot of ways because you know academics love to come up with isms and <laughs> And then trot them out to the academic marketplace and let them have scrimmages um, with each other. And, and I'm really not interested in trying to pr- um, promote or produce another ism that's going to do battle with all, all the other isms. Um, but it was—it was just kind of a, a, a tongue-in-cheek, ironic thing to to uh, say. Well, after structuralism, after post-structuralism, what's next? Well, how about infrastructuralism?
0: And that's actually one of the things I really love about the book. It's, it's And this comes out in the writing style, but also in the way that you're leading us into these ideas. It's very playful, um, and it's, it's much more sparkling and beautiful as a result of that. It, it opens up, and it asks us to open out into rather than closing down, um, and that's a really beautiful thank you. gift um, to give to a reader. Thank you. So thank you. And so when, let's actually keep going along those lines, because the first chapter, or actually the second chapter of the book, um, the first one after the understanding media kind of overview, does this in a really exciting way. <laughs> chapter two looks at C-media. So this is going to be the first of a series of, of these elemental um, investigations. This conducts a thought experiment, With two animals, right, who have, as you put it, mastered the sea in very different ways. Cetaceans and dolphins um, in particular uh, play an important role here, and humans. So in taking us into the sea, one of the things that this thought experiment does is try to imagine what it is to live in the sea as a medium, as a habitat, and as an environment. Um, so before we kind of get there specifically, let's take a little bit of a detour to talk about a concept that comes up in this context that's actually um, seems pretty important to what's going on, and that's the idea of media being species-specific and habitat-specific. Yes. Can you speak a little bit to that
1: issue? Yes, i um well, sea is not a natural environment for humans. In fact, it's a profoundly hostile um, environment. And it's sort of like the other of, I mean, it's an environment that humans historically have not managed to live in very well. And, you know, one of the reasons why I like thinking about how humans were able to use ships and a variety of technology um, in the wake of ships to... Um, live at at sea is because it's also a kind of parable for how humans have learned to live in another inhospitable environment which is called the earth because you know in fact we cannot live um, on earth without without clothing i mean i mean i would get horrendously sunburned and would not be able to, uh, to uh, live. I mean, I could not live where I live in um, at the 42nd latitude in the middle of, of North America and be able to survive outside. So, I mean, this, I'm sure we'll come back to this, but that technicity or our, the ability to alter our environment with media of our own making is essential to what it means to be um, a human being. And so the, uh, the SC is profoundly unnatural, us And it, it kind of brings out the more general fact that when we go to sea, we have to use craft of, of various kinds, just as when we live in any environment, we have, have to use craft. Whereas dolphin have the privilege, thanks to their very different history of evolution of living at sea, as it were, naturally. Without any kind of infrastructure, engineering, um, I, mean, I mean, they have to breathe. I mean, there are probably all kinds of cultural techniques that they have to use to uh, uh, survive at sea. But their bodies are suited for that environment in a ways that, in a way that ours are not. That's
0: right. And this is um, this becomes really, really important, right? And we're going to talk a little bit, or I hope we'll talk a little bit as we move into the book, about the importance of bodies and body parts yes. um, for this. You know, feet.
1: Bodies. <laughs> hand. Yes.
0: Exactly. Um, now, one of the things that bodies do in these environments is they perceive. Um, they perceive um, sensations. And this becomes really interesting as part of the thought experiment. Um, you describe the marine habitat here. And you describe or point out the fact that this environment filters out light and enables sound. And one of the really interesting things this chapter does is it really kind of holds our hand and takes us through the consequences of this. Like, let's slow down. Let's not just think of the sea in generalities. Let's really think of the particularities, the materialities and immaterialities yes, of what it would be, perfect. right? So let's. Um, can you say a little bit about that just to bring listeners into kind of a moment that might um, give them an example of the kind of work that the book does? What are the consequences of an environment like the sea? That filters out light and enables sound. For
1: you. Yes, thank you. Um, I don't know. I, I really love music, and I'd like to understand how music operates because you know there are a lot of great arts that human beings have have made: painting and literature and cooking and you know sport and all kinds of other things. But it always seems to me that music is the one that moves us, moves us the most, and Music is very tricky because it, it comes through through the ears, not through the eyes, and because it exists in time. And lots of philosophers have kind of embraced music or time or the ears um, as being kind of the royal road to understand what it means to, to exist. And so, the, you know, this thought experiment of imagining intelligent animals living in the In the marine habitat like like cetaceans in general or dolphins uh, in particular gives me a way to try to think about what it means to live in time you know if we were to uh, relate to the universe more entirely with our ears than with our eyes what it would be like and you know we have a great example with with dolphins who may be able to do kind of interpersonal radiology because of sonar you know they may not need to go up to each other and say hi, how are you? They can just do you know ultrasounds of each other and discover what they had for lunch, or if they have a cold, or whether they're um, pregnant, or whether they're they they have arthritis, or or a, whatever. I mean, what would it be like in a world in which you know, the surface of our body was not? The you know the the impermeability of the body of, you know the opacity of the skin were not the condition of everyday everyday communication, and so you know dolphins um, allow us to try to think what it'd be like to live in a world in which you know we couldn't sleep we just couldn't tune out we could sleep one you know brain hemisphere at a time but we'd always have to be vigilant because we would have to because of of breathing you just can't automate your breathing when you're a mammal in um in 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 the ocean and there also it would be no storage um living um, in the ocean because there's no means of writing or fire as far as we can tell so the question is what kinds of Data networks or memory practices, would these smart animals have developed in thousands of years? I mean, millions of years of uh, of living in the sea. Would it be a kind of you know radical, radically other kind of internet that the dolphins would have? I mean, obviously, don't have an answer answer to that, but it's very interesting to try to think about completely other ways of of being um, in the world. I mean, the great question of a uh, phenomenology. Right.
0: now. This chapter really um, asks us to, and uh, along the lines of what you've been saying, it really asks us to take seriously the fact that mind is radically embodied, right? And so the minds of dolphins can't be like ours. They create with their bodies, not their hands. They communicate without artifacts, right? They could have techniques, as you put it here, but not technologies. They do not have our infrastructures. And um, in terms of just coming back to the importance of this idea of infrastructure, that which we take for granted, that which stands under, that includes um, some of the things that you've actually mentioned, but that listeners may not have keyed into as being really important here, time, right? Part of those infrastructures include things as basic and taken for granted as the idea of now, Yes, um, so
1: thank no. you for catching that. Oh. That's my, that's one of my favorite parts of of the book. Can you talk about that then? now, well, yeah, I mean you know what would it li- mean to live in a universe in which the now is not the same for all participants in the universe? Well, in fact, that is the universe that we live in, and and that's what Einstein uh, discovered. Clearly, is that, you know, in a really big universe, that there is no such thing as a kind of blanket now that everybody um, can uh, can live in. I mean, someone living light years away, there's no way to have um, a, a, you know, an exact clock that's going to be shared between us and them because of the time it takes for the signal that's saying what time it is on Earth to reach you know, someone in some some distant galaxy. And this is actually also um, the same for people or animals or smart creatures living um, in the ocean because, you know, they would live in a world in which you couldn't have standard time, essentially. And so I, I do a couple of strange little calculations to imagine what it'd be like for dolphins spread out in the sea to all engage in a common conversation and it turns out that you can actually show that dolphins in different places might receive bits of the conversation in a different order depending on where they're sitting and you think oh this is this is a uh, this is totally bizarre what would it be like to live in a world in which there is no such thing as a shared now but in fact, that is the world that we live in. I walk into a library, I pick up a, a book by Shakespeare that was, you know, written 410 years ago, and it's shelved next to a book written by some English professor r- written two years ago. <laughs> you know, a library is a place where we have all these overlapping nows, just like, you know, the night sky is a bunch of overlapping nows because all those stars look like they're hit. I mean, they all hit the light hits your retina at the same time, but. You know, some of those stars may not even exist now, if we can say that. I mean, that's that's the problem, because they may have ceased. I mean, this is hard to kind of think through, but the light that hits my retina could have been sent, you know, 50 million years ago, and the star in the meantime could have ceased to exist, but I wouldn't know it because it takes that long for the light, light to get here. So this kind of meditation, in, maybe I'm geeking out a little bit on it but really helps us think about what it means to live in a in a world of extended space and time and that's that's what what we live in in, in a world that has media of recording and uh, and, and transmission
0: um, and and geeking out you're among friends here yes, we can't geek is. out here where can we geek out okay. <laughs> So another thing that you mentioned um, in your discussion um, just now about the sea and dolphins also brings us into what I took to be another really important theme throughout the book and something that um, will kind of lead us into the next chapter. That's the idea of storage, but storage related to death in particular. And yeah. You make a point here in this chapter that cetaceans can't bury their dead or make lasting grave sites. Um, so this becomes really important, and it's a theme that recurs in the next chapter, this idea of settlement and graves and death. Um,
1: You're an excellent uh, reader. Thank you. Oh so,
0: Well, it's a great book. I mean, yeah. it really, like I said, it's, it's just such a beautiful book. It makes you want to read closely. Um, so this takes us into the second elemental medium, um, and this is the chapter on fire. Chapter three looks at fire media, and since we're already there, we're already at death, um, can you maybe t- uh, kind of open up this medium for us a little bit by talking about the importance of death, graves, soot, um, in the context of fire, um, insofar as you find it
1: interesting and important. Yes. um, Thank you. I mean, I think one of the big themes of the book is, is disappearance. And how do we make peace as human beings with, with disappearance? And of course, this is kind of fundamental moral, uh, dilemma of being a human is trying to figure out what it means that we're all mortal and that we're all going to to die. And one of the great things that storage media have enabled for us is the ability to make monuments, memorials, and texts, and libraries in ways that we can communicate across generations, sometimes at great distance. And you know, these are all um, you know wonderful things which define us as humans. And in in a sense, what civilization is is a great kind of tomb or pyramid um, that we build up to fight off the fact that we're all going going to die. Because hopefully the library won't die. And the University of Iowa has been around for 165 years or something like that. And obviously, no human has uh, has survived that. But you know, we build all these mausolea. You know all these institutions and and, and monuments which um, allow us to um, transcend the sentence of, of of death, which is and and this is why fire is so interesting because fire is is a very mysterious, utterly fascinating entity which you know makes things disappear. You know, and why is it that? this this thing which is so violent and so destructive and so scary turns out to also be the the best friend that human technology and art and craft has ever had and and so fire ends up being a, a kind of example for me of of how the recognition of of transience or disappearance um when brought into a cultural frame um allows us to cope and and I mean, you know, paradoxically, fire, by making things disappear, also allows us to um, build things. I mean, without fire, iron can become steel. And almost every technology, including the technology that you and I are now using to um, talk back and forth, um, depends upon um, on the refinement of the earth by fire, including, tragically, of course, um, rare earth metals that infest our bloody computers from Congo and other places. <laughs>
0: Now, this chapter takes us, um, there's a lot of really wonderful discussion of negation and erasure and disappearance, but as you mentioned, there's also um uh, a reminder that this is also a a medium of cultivation right you talk about the domestication of plants of animals i mean really of people and civilization um is another important theme that goes um that runs throughout the book so i want to ask you about something very specific that also comes up in this chapter um because it recurs throughout and it seems that the to me, at least as a reader, the fact that this recurs throughout the book might signal that it's m- m- maybe an important touchstone for you. I don't know. Um, so either yeah. way, it would be interesting to hear yeah. about it. And that's Melville and Moby Dick.
1: Oh, yes. Um,
0: can you speak to that a little bit for you? Was that a touchstone in the book? And, and what's the importance of that particular work in terms of the work that you're doing here?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, in some ways, this this book is an effort to Write another Moby Dick. Um, you know it obviously isn't, and I wouldn't pretend um, that it is. But in some ways, I like, you know the uh, fantasy that I had is this book would be a cross between Heidegger's Being in Time and, and Melville's Moby Dick, <laughs> maybe with Hannah Arendt's uh, The Human Condition stirred in. Uh, so I mean, kind of grandiosely over the top in terms of my um, ambition, but you know, Moby Dick is obviously a book about craft and it's a book about survival in a hostile element, it's a book about um, nature and humanity it's a book about um, theology and um, you know, it's a book about the planet and, and the writing is so beautiful and so, you know, there are a lot of different angles that, that um, Moby Dick was an, an inspiration uh, to me in this
0: Moby Dick is the book that um in North American high schools or uh, grammar schools at least you right all of us read it in high school and we th- and we're not in any kind of a a position to appreciate Moby Dick as high school students. So you read it and you're like, oh, that sucks. Like, that's so boring. And you you have that memory in your mind of, like, Moby Dick equals sucks, right, or, like, super boring or whatever. And then you come back to it as an adult, and it's a completely new experience, and it's just kind of world-rocking if you actually bring yourself back to that work and
1: experiencing it new. Yeah, I mean, my, my my first book actually has, has up some Moby Dick touches um, in, in the end. I've got a little um, set of quotations at the end uh, um, collected by a sub-sub librarian. So I, I've kept up this romance with Moby Dick for um, quite a while, I guess.
0: So as we move further into the book, we move from fire and there's a million billion things that we could
1: talk about right? <laughs> about fire. It's just stuff to the gills with weird little facts, isn't it?
0: Well, but it's fabulous. Um, but, but we could easily, you know, spend another hour talking about containers and candles and, um, and and all other sorts of things. But let's get into the air a little bit. Chapter 4 and 5 look at two major kinds of sky media. You call Chapter 5, um, or Chapter 5 looks at Kronos, and chapter, or Chapter 4, rather, it looks at Kronos, and Chapter 5 looks at Kairos. And so we're looking at astronomy and meteorology. Okay? Time and the weather. These are fabulous, fascinating chapters, and, and let's get into them at least a little bit. So in Chapter 4... Um, you bring us into uh, a kind of uh, way of thinking about the sky as a medium for thinking with producing and in inhabiting and embodying time and this uh, this comes up in any number of specific um, objects and instances you talk about calendars and clocks bio calendars um, there's so much we could talk about here. What I want to start with um, is another taken-for-granted object, like the now, right, which we've talked about, um, That this unearths, So it, it shines a light on an infra- infrastructural element of time we might not otherwise see, and that's the idea of a day. Mm. So can you talk about the idea of a day um, for you in this context How is that important? Why is that important? Um, And feel free to just kind of bring in whatever else you think is most important here in this chapter.
1: Yeah. Well, you you very nicely quoted earlier my argument that a medium is an ensemble between natural elements and cultural practices. And the day is kind of the perfect example of that because, you know, clearly – you know the Earth, wrote, I mean, spins on its axis, and there's a kind of natural given fact which is pretty regular and, and which we can more or less uh, depend on. And on the other hand, when you look at how different cultures and different historical moments have. Define the day. It turns out to be this kind of enormous, fascinating logistical mess. Of you know, should the day start at noon? Should the day start at sunset? Should it start at, at sunrise? Should it start at some abstract thing as ours does, such as? Um, such as uh, midnight, and it turns out that that the effort to define the day turns out to be this very complicated political thing in which you have, you know, the French Revolution wanting to have ten days in the week, and the the Russian Revolution wanting to have five days in the week, and um, sometimes sometimes the church is involved, and sometimes the states involved, and sometimes the military's involved, and sometimes in some cultures. Wednesday is called Mittwoch. I mean, as a German, middle middle of the week, or Sredu in a in a Russian, you know, middle. Um, you know, and it's just. I mean, it's to me, it's just a kind of fascinating example of a, of this kind of bizarre um, hybrid of of na- of nature and culture.
0: Mm-hmm. So. This um, chapter also uh, not just kind of shines a light on now, but also talks in really, really interesting ways about the importance of directionality and orientation. And this is another set of concepts that uh, we probably take for granted, or a lot of people probably take this for granted. And this came up, incidentally, in the sea chapter um, when you were talking about water um, and in terms of, you know, what would... In a marine environment, um, living in that kind of environment, what would up and down mean, right? I mean, h- how do we think about that? Yeah. For you, what's what's most important about kind of looking anew or looking again at orientation
1: in this context and in this way? Yeah, well, I mean, orientation is one of those things which sounds very very mundane, like finding directions, but it's a term that also has a kind of deep emotional, ethical or religious meaning to it I mean to be oriented to know where you are um in the cosmos of course the term orientation comes from east orient um knowing knowing where east is i mean this room that i'm sitting in is perfectly aligned um with with the heavens and it's because i live in a place that was explored in the 19th century and which was laid out um, upon a grid i'm more or less facing exact or true north and you know this is a kind of invisible fact that you know throughout a lot of you know places in North America I doubt you can do this in in Vancouver I mean waterfront property doesn't allow for you know grids as, as easily but we are kind of you know our walls the directions that we sleep in you know how, how we drive how how we walk around are defined by our orientation to the cosmos in a way that for example dolphins because their eyes eyes are uh, too poor to actually see it could not take the stars into account as a kind of basis for their architecture and city planning and and uh, and, and and so on. And I, I've got some some weird stuff in there that I really don't know what to do with. But some <laughs> some uh, brainwave research suggesting that people may actually sleep better pointing in different directions, or that there may be some kind of inherent you know orientation in the uh, human brain. We, we know that bird brains do this. I mean, we make fun of bird brains for being stupid, but birds know how to you know, how to orient uh, with regard to, to the to the sun. Bees know how to do this. I mean, maybe there's something in um, in the human brain that there's a kind of vestigial connection to, you know, the ways that our, you know, that our earth rotates, the way that, that it happens to be spinning.
0: One of these days, we're going to have a whole other conversation about prepositions in this context. Uh, I'm going to kind of budget oh. tie with you. We need to talk about that. Not right now, necessarily.
1: Prepositions. But, uh, I love- Positions.
0: Oh, I'm I'm writing about this. We're, we'll talk. We'll talk. We'll, we'll you, have
1: coffee. Talk. You know, um, you know, Michel Serre. People keep telling yes. me I, I need to read uh, Michel Serre, the yes. French philosopher and historian of science, who mm-hmm. has a lot to say about prepositions. But yes. anyway, great. We'll talk, we'll talk. For the next time. For
0: the next time. <laughs> but for this time, let's get back to now. And we get back to now and the idea of now in the next chapter. So chapter five, the times and the seasons, Sky Media 2 takes us into weather. Um, and we have so many amazing points of reference and objects that we could talk about here. Watches. Um, you call watches a uh, count, or watch a counter, a pointer, a stargazer, a body technique, a pet. There are towers um, which allow us to understand a notion of leverage, um, and maybe we'll get back to that if we have time. We have the object of Heidegger as a weatherman here, um, which is a- fascinating. We have bells. We have sound marking space. It's just full of amazing specificity and amazing particulars. But one in particular, um, we have to talk about, um, because it's, it's perhaps an idea that must, that might bring people to the book in the first place. It's in the title, um, and it's really important. And this is the cloud. So you mentioned, you talk about clouds here in this chapter and you talk about clouds and say the, um, Uh, Or you talk about the idea that clouds could be media as a kind of, as you put it, test of the limits of the concept. So calling clouds media is a test of the limits of the concept of media. So can you talk about that, John?
1: Sure. Well, this this happened in one of my seminars in which we were talking about what the media concept means. And I had proposed uh, probably fairly outlandish list of potential candidates for what counts as media. And I had this very thoughtful student who said, Are clouds media? And and I was stumped because, you know, clouds end up, you know, showing up in conversations like this as kind of the ultimate, you know, nonsensical thing. The one thing that we can never claim has any meaning to it. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that it's kind of absurd to say that clouds don't mean anything mean tell that to a farmer or a sailor or a pilot or a meteorologist or a painter it, it's clear that clouds mean all kinds of things, and particularly, you know, in the 20th century, when we have to live with the poison gas cloud from World War One, or the mushroom cloud of World War Two, or the cloud of, you know, particular carbon floating, you know, 400 parts per million of carbon floating around in our atmosphere um, at the moment. So. To, I mean, to say that different kinds of clouds are things that we shouldn't read or that there's something wrong with reading them as meaningful, as media, as conditions for our our world, I think is a kind of, you know, hazardous. I mean, it's hazardous for us to say clouds don't mean anything in the world that we happen to live in.
0: Mm -hmm. You actually talk about, yeah, you use the word urgency, right? It's urgent um, to look for images in the clouds, to read the clouds. Can you talk more about that urgency?
1: Sure. Well, I mean, just kind of what I'm fighting fighting against. There's two or three thousand years of history saying that clouds are fluffy and silly and subjective. You get it in Aristophanes. You get it in the Bible um, as well. Um, but in terms of kind of you know the looming apocalypse that our age has has to worry about it's clearly that of 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 climate change and you know i just i I wrote an essay which is going to come out a little bit uh, in, in a little bit about 1964 as a great year of technological thinking and i discovered that they were equally worried about um an apocalypse in the sky, which, of course, is a thermonuclear um, apocalypse, which would be more sudden. You know, We tend to be worried about a more longer-term kind of end to life as we know it, but it would also come... Um, from the sky if our weather patterns get messed up if the polar ice cap melts if the albedo you know if the you know the uh, reflective power of all the polar ice stops bouncing the heat back up into the sky and we start absorbing it in our oceans the seas will rise the cities will go under a lot of what we take for granted about habitability um, will be impossible the the amount of food that we can grow because of the you know, uh, Haber-Bosch process of, you know, of using, you know, nitrogen to produce fertilizer to, you know, grow green revolution plants. I mean, we are radically dependent upon the series of conditions that we take for granted. And if we take take them for granted, we put our survival at risk. (laughs) That's the urgency.
0: Now, you... um raise a question here in this chapter that also comes up um, right in the introduction i think and this is the question of meaning right what would it look like and what would it be to ask if clouds have meaning um and you actually help us understand um meaning in a different way by asking that question and asking us to consider that question right and i think in the introduction um you mentioned uh, you mentioned this i think you say that meaning is repositories of readable data and processes that sustain and enable existence. This is a really different way of thinking about meaning um, than most, re- or than many readers. Uh, rather, might
1: yeah. go to the book with so. Yeah. Do, do you want to talk a little bit about? Sure. That? Well, that I don't mean in in that quote you just read. I don't mean to say that that is exactly what meaning is, but sure. that those things yield meanings yeah. and need to be seen as legitimate sources for finding meanings you know, as an english major in the 1970s my teachers taught me with a kind of a lot of pathos that, that we lived in this world of overweening technology and science that was objectifying and cruel and calculating and that we needed to go to art and poetry in order to find meaning and i love art and poetry and don't don 't get me wrong, but it seemed to me kind of dangerous to end up locating meaning only in the uniquely mean only in the world of human creation and only in the world of canonized human creation like like poetry or art or cuisine or uh, whatever I mean it seems like it 's really dangerous to say that the clouds don't have meaning, or that the oceans don't have meaning, or that the stars don't. It, when I say meaning, it doesn't mean that the stars have intentionally decided that they're going to send us some kind of cryptic message, but rather that there's significance built into the, their very existence, and that it's our option and responsibility and great gift as media theorists to read those meanings which were never written or never intended. You know, never. Um, the result of a you know an individual's psychology i mean the clouds don't have psychology but they have meaning so i'm interested in trying to think about how we would think about meaning that is not rooted in in brains but is still there because i think the world is full of it full of abundant meaning that we should be reading and and thinking about.
0: And the conclusion of the book is we're not there yet uh, but yeah. we'll get there and the
1: conclusion yeah. sorry is really I gonna, I'm getting no, it myself.
0: No no I'm I'm you know pushing you to, to pushing you ahead no this is great I just want to kind of signal for listeners sure. the conclusion of the book really takes on this idea and that kind of uses it to propose the need for um, a, a, what you call a greener media studies and really talks about the stakes um, involved, right? I mean, there, this is important. Again, a sense of urgency um, goes along with this idea of the stakes of taking nature seriously um, as a kind of epitome of, or a repository or space of meaning and media yes. So, to get there, we need to go through Earth and ether though. so let's briefly take a travel uh, take a trip through there. Um, so we talked a li- we've just talked about clouds and for listeners, clouds you know are not just those things in the sky. Um, they're also you know the, the inky um, kind of phantoms that squid scored out in the water, right? So that clouds can be a lot of different sorts of things. But clouds right now, um, the idea of a cloud also has a very strong digital resonance, um, obviously, yeah. right? Um, which really brings us into the next chapter. This is a chapter that looks at the body and writing as earth media, um, as earth-related media, but it also brings us into the um, really the importance of the digital in a really um, material and immaterial kind of a way. So after looking in this chapter at the body as medium, right, and we've already talked a little bit about this, the importance of faces and right. hands and feet. You, you talk about the importance of or the issue of telepresence. This
1: mm-hmm. is what
0: we're doing right now. Yes. <laughs> it's very appropriate. <laughs> um, and the idea of presence as a medium now this is um for those of us who work in university environments um right who are uh, working in these kinds of networks um virtuality and telepresence uh the the kind of what comes with being in person um body to body and what comes with not doing that these are really vital issues
1: right now absolutely
0: so can you speak a little bit to to this issue of telepresence and, and the idea of presence as a medium um in
1: the book Sure. Yeah, I mean, this is something that I talk a lot about with my students. You know, the undergrads are all convinced that social media has essentially um, destroyed their interactions uh, with each other. And if you ask them, they'll all say that, you know, body-to-body presence is the gold standard. And I ask them, how often do they do this? And they say, very rarely. Mm -hmm. And as we push, you know, we try to figure out why they would prefer to text or prefer to use a variety of, you know, of online platforms and the the, the reason seems to be that, you know, body-to-body interaction is dangerous. It's you risk embarrassment, you, you risk awkwardness, you don't know if your stomach's going to gurgle or if you're going to spew somebody with an errant sneeze droplet, or, I mean, there are all kinds of, you know, bizarre little funny things that happen when you're face-to-face, whereas, you know, the uh, shield of virtuality actually, you know, pr- provides a kind of safety in which people can... Imagine each other in which they don't have to deal with the kind of complexities, the ethological complexities, the kind of animal behavior complexities of, of a presence. In mean, animals that get together, it's it's complicated. I mean, you you've got to negotiate all kinds of things. And you know, one of my little throwaway, throwaway lines in in this chapter is that you know that we'll really have telepresence when there's something called footbook. <laughs> as well as Facebook, because you know having your feet in the same place as someone else—that's kind of you know the real test of if you're really there embodied um, or not. I don't. I, I. don't see. I don't think any Silicon Valley entrepreneur is going to, or vulture capitalist is going to shell out a lot of money for footbook, but <laughs> it's a possibility. <laughs>
0: So that's a, so this is one of uh, a number of really important issues that come up in, in that chapter. And we're not going to have time to sure. talk about a whole sure. lot of other ones. But I just sure. want to mention for listeners who might be particularly interested in this, there's a whole um, series of discussions here as well about writing um, that we won't you know have too much time to talk right. about. Writing and lists, writing and non-linearity right? The idea of of nonlinearity when it comes to writing. Writing is the union of two different sensory registers, the spatial order of vision and the temporal order of hearing. Now, since you've talked about the importance of of music and sound for you um, and time and space and the way that these media um, marry the two and and bring a conversation about an awareness of an experience of the two into conversation, um, this is a really important theme throughout all of the chapters. Um, maybe this is a good point at which to bring in writing. So, for you, Ed, can, can you talk about this importance of writing sure. um, in terms of these different um, spatial and temporal sensory registers?
1: Sure. I mean, I hope it's not just me trying to justify my own artistic or literary or scholarly practice. But, you know, the argument really is is that writing has not been superseded by filmmaking, by sound recording, by digital media. That, in fact, it remains the most important and most fundamental of all media, precisely because it allows us to do time axis manipulation, you know, to, to talk like, like the engineers do. But writing allows you to jump in and out of a, out of a text in the same way that you can push pause on um, um and that's an amazing power to be able to be able to manipulate time and and of course writing is is connected with the grave because you engrave you know something you write it down you fix it there's a certain kind of fixity deathlike quality to writing but because it allows you to overcome time there's also a certain kind of you know life quality i mean it's I mean, writing is very complicated. You know, the letter kills; the spirit gives life, as the old, old kind of classic opposition goes. But I want to argue that that the letter also gives gives life. That writing allows us to, you know, talk across great distances of time and space, and do all kinds of you know civilizational things we couldn't do otherwise.
0: Now, as we come to, you've mentioned death. Um, this brings us really nicely into the the next chapter, um, which is kind of the last body chapter yes. yeah. before the conclusion, which is another chapter um, that asks us to consider the importance of forgetting, of loss, of death, um, as also creative mo- movements, right? Sort of creative um, acts, um, but, you know, damage um, and loss and forgetting as being really kind of integral to what it is to remember, right. what it is to store, what it is to tag, what it is to search, and let's talk about Google. <laughs> let's talk about Google. Um, so chapter 7 brings us into a discussion of Google. Um, you introduce Borges as a potential patron saint of Google, um, yes. and, and he's just really right the perfect figure uh, to bring in here, and I'm just a major figure in the chapter. Now patron saint, this language of saint um, sainthood, really evokes the importance of um, a kind of theological reading, or a Religious reading sure. of Google in this chapter. Um, and so um, let's talk about that, right? Um, because this is a really important move here. Google as a religious medium and a possibility, and what we get out of a theological um, analysis of Google. What for you is most important about that move?
1: Yes, yeah, thank you. Um, you know, I mean, my argument is essentially that Google wants to be godlike and that it markets itself quite explicitly as a kind of total benign benevolent, you know overseeing um, being that provides you all of your wants if you only ask it, knock and you and shall find all this all, all this kind of stuff. Um, against that, I mean, if I actually try to figure out what I'm doing in in the chapter, I think I'm basically giving um, an anti-totalitarian theolo- theological read on Google. Now if that doesn't make sense, um you know in my uh, religious tradition of Mormonism God is often c- understood to be finite that is not as as not being strictly omniscient or omnipotent um, which is actually a good thing because it allows us to try it it allows us to understand suffering and death um, in a in a a better light, because you know we don't blame God for the problems of Earth, because there's some ways that He He cannot intervene, and so I think I'm, I'm trying to say here's Google. It, it pretends to want to solve death. It claims to be um, the great uniter of all of our knowledge. What would happen if we really understood that Google was about disappearance and incompleteness and imperfection? And what would you know? This is kind of the thing that I hint at but don't really develop. What would happen if we understood? god as perhaps somehow impl- implicated in an imperfect but ongoing on ongoing or growing universe that's kind of the you know the the really big question that is lurking around in there somewhere
0: it's super fascinating so we're almost at the end sure. of the time john um, but i want to just kind of bring us briefly into the conclusion and the the idea of this um Religious or theological reading of Google kind of nicely does that. Um, So, in addition to calling for a greener media studies, right, that as you put it here appreciates our long natural history of shaping and being shaped by our habitats as a process of mediation, right? We've talked already a little right. bit about the stakes of taking nature seriously um, as a in its relationship to meaning and meaning making. In addition to this, you gesture toward or you ask us to think about the importance of media studies being friendlier to a number of different um, kind of fields or disciplines, um, including, you, know, you mentioned philosophy, you mentioned theology, but you also mentioned the natural sciences. Yeah. And it's this last part that I, um, I'd love to um, uh, ask you to talk about a little bit, because that really gets at the heart of a lot of conversations yeah. <laughs> that a lot of us are having right now. So can you speak to that a little bit?
1: Sure. I mean... Here again, um, so much of 20th century thought has pitted the two cultures against each other. And I think that's one of the most hideous ideas to ever infest academe. Um, I don't think there are two cultures, one of science and one of uh, humanities. I think there's maybe lots and lots of cultures, or maybe... Uh, maybe one culture, but you know for us to say that natural sciences are things that we shouldn 't know about or they 're just dry and boring and stupid it 's just completely uninformed I mean if you look at what 's going on in natural science it 's mind boggling and fascinating, and natural scientists I mean are often the people who are least committed to the kind of positivist narrative that um, humanists like to blame natural scientists. Um, for having. So, I mean, this is really a call to try to, you know, be friendlier, be much more ecumenical to um, a lot of, of, toward knowledge in general. I mean, that's what media studies should be, is a kind of encyclopedic take on on what we know. I mean, that's the kind of stakes, the huge ambitious stakes of the book, is that media studies should be an analysis of, of the human condition. And you can't look at the human condition without understanding our status as animals, as political animals, as Aristotle would say, that live in this really rich environment.
0: And that's a perfect note to bring us to our conclusion. John, thank you so much. Now, there's, you know, we touched on just a few moments. Right of many, 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 many fabulous um, descriptions and objects and concepts um, in the book. It's just it's a beautiful, extraordinarily rich book, and we've only just barely explored the
1: surface. You're so kind, thank you. So,
0: is there anything in particular um, that you'd like to mention for listeners, though, that um, especially perhaps for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to become readers, that that we haven't talked about?
1: Um, you know. I don't know if this is relevant, but sometimes I've suggested to academic readers that they read chapter one, and non-academic readers that they skip chapter one. And I don't know if you would agree with this, but chapter one is really much. It's really about how this fits into ongoing uh, debates about media theory, and I hope that the book would be able to reach people who are kind of interested in thinking about what it means to be a human and what it means to be a human at this moment on Earth and. You know, I wouldn't want chapter one to be a barrier to entry.
0: I think I mean I think chapter one is written in a way that's really accessible for non-academics as well. And and what I would say is for l- listeners who are non-academics or who are just not um, don't consider themselves to be. Uh, maybe professionally involved in, you know, academic writing or wh- wh- however we want to put that, Chapter 1 is a really great way of setting out an ecology or a landscape of other thinkers and people and works that you might want to explore um, to, you know, to keep exploring these ideas. So I think it depends on expectations, yeah, right? Sure. Um, that's great. So now that the book is out, and it's a beautiful, wonderful book that everyone should read, I'll just say that definitively, what's next for you? What are you
1: currently working on? Well, you know, I'm working on a lot of different things, but but the main next book is going to be a co-authored book with a colleague of mine who actually died almost 10 years ago. And um, Ken Camille was a Dorian at the University of Iowa. He's a very close friend, and he started this book on um, kind of the cultural history of media um, in the U.S., focusing focusing on how people thought about images and information. And you know, he died suddenly and abandoned you know abandoned you know, not just the book, he abandoned a lot of things. And as a work of mourning. I think I'm going to, you know, in the next year, I'm going to finally finish this strangely co authored book with my colleague who can't actually tell me that I'm getting it wrong. So it's been a very interesting kind of, you know, ethical and personal and intellectual process to try to write something with someone who's, um, who's gone. So maybe that explains why I'm interested in thinking about disappearance and and writing and and the grave and all of these things.
0: Thank you for taking time from that to talk with us today. Uh, It's been a a pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to the New Books Network Seminar. Thanks very much for joining us and we'll see you next time.